Hi, I'm Shreen Patrick, and you're listening to the Modern Retail Podcast, where I speak with executives leading the reinvention of retail. Excited to welcome today one of the founding partners of consumer-facing investing firm Coefficient Capital, Franklin Isaacson, my guest today, and his business partner, Andrew Galetka, just closed a $170 million fund, just invested in a couple of very cool businesses, and have a lot to talk about when it comes to the current situation. Hi, Franklin. Hi, thank you for having me. I'm a big fan. I'm so excited that you're on the show. Okay, <laughs> first things first. Um, how would, if I were to ask you in just like one word to describe mm-hmm. sort of the current landscape from your perspective, from sort of the investing perspective, what word would you use? Yeah, unfortunately, the only word that one can use is crisis, right? I mean, we are still, I mean, I don't know when people will be listening to this podcast, but we are still in sort of that first phase of Corona when we're all pantry loading, we're still panic shopping, we're still not sure how long this is going to last. And so I think, uh, I think, unfortunately, I have to say, given all that is going on in the economy and just in terms of human, the human cost of this disease, we are, I would say we are still in that crisis mode. Uh, I think, you know, the way we think about it uh, is that there will be sort of a second phase uh, that will likely last another call it 12 to 18 months. And hopefully we'll start over the summer when, you know, that initial crisis will be averted. The exponential growth obviously has been that curve has been flattened. But where you know Corona will still very much be part of consumers' consideration sets, right? The decision to go to um, uh, a game, the decision to go on a trip, the decision to make a big purchase, what, that will be part, you know, still very much influenced by what's going on. And until there is that vaccine or or a decent cure, and then then we'll start that third phase, which is sort of the new normal, if you will, when hopefully that crisis will have been averted, when people feel comfortable going out. But obviously, there'll still be economic ramifications from those first two phases. Um, and so that's kind of how we think about it in those three phases. But if you needed one word, I unfortunately have to say crisis. Okay. All right. I, I'll allow all the other words that came after. It's fine. Um, it's absolutely okay. Uh, there's no rules here. It's just a podcast. Um, okay. So you, you said a lot of really interesting things in there. And I'm actually hoping we can break this down. I mean, the first sure. one is that... And I think this was evident, you know, a few weeks ago. I mean, we were recording this in about early May, but just a few weeks ago, I think the notion of this V-shaped recovery essentially went out the door very, very quickly. And um, I think you and Andrew had actually done a Q&A with us at at Modern Retail, and you sort of said the same thing, that this isn't a V-shape. We don't just flip a switch, go back to normal, despite what, you know, certain corners of kind of the industrial and political establishment think. Okay. So when we look at sort of crisis and like I want to talk a little bit about crisis investing because then what does that right. really mean? How do you how do you run? Because I think everybody we've had the podcast, whatever, say there, you know, the last episode I remember we did, I remember with Lunia, um, mm-hmm. C of Lunia, and she's looking at, okay, how do you build a sleepwear and intimates brand during a crisis? Right. So how do you invest during a crisis? Because you are, you are investing. Yeah, no, absolutely. So I think, you know, we're somewhat fortunate in that, you know, we invest in, you know, consumer staples uh, that are sold in an omnichannel way. And if you look at all aspects of the economy, that's probably one of the sectors that has performed the best, right? If you compare that to energy or travel or entertainment or whatever the case may be. And, you know, the trends that we were investing behind, in fact, the reason we created this fund um, was to take advantage of sort of that grocery store and that drugstore and that Sephora, if you will, becoming or moving online, essentially, right? This has happened to the bookstore. This had happened to the mattress store. This had happened to so many other classes of trade. 
but not yet really in the grocery store. And we can talk a little bit more about that. And so when we went out and, and sort of put that thesis together, you know, at that time, roughly 4% or 5% of food and beverage, for example, in America was sold online. And, you know, the consensus estimates that that was going to double over the next five years. Well, guess what? That sort of doubled overnight, right? Because right. of Corona. Like if you didn't already uh, buy groceries online, uh, you certainly are now. And our guess is that's going to stick uh, at least to some degree. And we can talk about sort of how we estimate those numbers, of what percent will, 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 will stick. But regardless... So actually, a lot of our convictions, if you will, um, that we're uh, investing behind have been strengthened by this crisis. And so when you ask us, how do we invest? Well, I think the answer is, you know, we've always been fairly selective, right? We do three to four deals a year. So it's fairly high conviction investing. We spend quite a lot of time with founders uh, before making that investment. And you know, that really hasn't changed. Uh, obviously, you know, it's harder to budget. It's harder to predict. But, you know, we're long-term investors. And so we're investing behind you know, the long-term prospects of these businesses. And of course, we're taking into account what's going on in the economy, what's happening with Corona. Um, but our, our job ultimately is to take risk and to try and, and try and be long-term. Uh, so in that regard, it hasn't changed. We're investing in, you know, the same sector. So consumables, same stage, right? Companies doing between five and 20 million in revenue, same check size, typically five to 10 million or leading or co-leading Series A and Series B rounds, and, and none of that has changed. So the, the fundamentals obviously haven't changed, and also, yes, you're right. I mean, the, the categories that you've focused on are actually are the categories that are potentially seeing such major consumer shifts that this could be a good thing for them. So I love specifics. Specifics are great. So you just said all these all these things. Can you talk a little bit about um, – so you guys just announced sort of um, investment in Hydrant, and I want to talk mm -hmm. a little bit about kind of – how Hydrant, just as an example, and I know you have many examples in your portfolio, yes. kind of fits into these parameters. What are the different things sure. kind of you were looking for and how does something like that work? For those who don't know, also, if you can tell us a little bit about what Hydrant is, because I <laughs> sure, liked how yeah. you said it earlier. <laughs> it's Gatorade, but to. modern. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think maybe just taking a little bit of a step back. I think, you know, the last sort of 10, 15 years, what's happened in consumer is that we've all been buying different kinds of products, right? What we've been buying has changed, right? I'm sure you're buying organic yogurt or plant-based milk or clean beauty, uh, craft whiskey, right? That's essentially a relatively new phenomenon we've called the last decade. Sure. Uh, and as we know, the big strategics have been slow to innovate. They've been slow to take advantage of these new consumer trends, and that's created opportunity for new brands. I think what we've seen over the last sort of three to four years, and that's really been accelerated now by Corona, is not just what we're buying has changed, but also how we're buying has changed, right? How do we discover a brand? Is it a sampling station in a Costco? Is it an end cap at Wegmans? Or do we discover that brand on Instagram? And, you know, how we buy the product, right? Do we buy it at Sephora and then replenish on Amazon? Uh, do we buy it online right away? And, and even sort of the end of that consumer journey, meaning how do we talk about that brand? How does it go viral? You know, you're probably more likely to leave a review on Amazon than you are to tell a friend about a product. So hydrant really fits into that, that structure perfectly, right? So the, in terms of what people are buying, well, this is a healthier version of a sports drink, right? It has not a, none of the preservatives, the colorants, not as much sugar. So it's a better for you alternative in a very large category that has not seen a lot of innovation, right? It's a typical sure. you know, duopoly, Gatorade, Powerade, et cetera, and hence not that much innovation, but also how... Um, you know, people are buying this category has changed. And this and hydrant is ideally positioned. So there, there are sticks that's essentially powdered hydration that you add into your water bottle or into your glass of water. 
Uh, and, you know, as we think, talk about the grocery store moving online, how does that beverage aisle move online, right? If you buy a case of Gatorade online, someone loses money on that transaction, right? Whether it's Instacart or whether it's the you know, Amazon or the retailer. If you and I were to go to a FedEx location and ask them to ship a case of Gatorade from my apartment in New York to your apartment in New York, that's probably going to cost us like 15 to $20. Like that is just not profitable. Right. And so someone subsidizes that. And so what Hydrant does by selling these sticks that essentially just fit into an envelope, um, it is a way for that beverage aisle to move online. And that's what we liked about this business, right? They're great at you know, getting consumers to discover the product online. It's ideally suited to be sold online, to be replenished online. It's a product that I'm actually drinking one right now, but you know, it's a product wow. that people drink it's a, two it's or a three really a good, of. It's a really good investing partner. I love it. <laughs> Absolutely. No, I'm, a bit, I'm a heavy user, but it's also because I can drink two or three or four of those a day. And so you frequently replenish. So again, ideal for subscription. Um, so that's what attracted us to this business. It's sort of better for you sports drink. That's also better for the planet because it's not sold in plastic bottles and you're not shipping water across the country. What about kind of the, are, are you and in general are investors mm-hmm. kind of a little bit more, the word I'm going to use is stringent, but I sort of mean like just a little bit more careful too, because I did, I did get this feeling and this isn't maybe not really in sort of the consumables category as much, but in general, last year, there seemed to be sort of so much money flowing into this space in categories where I was like, what is even the addressable market here? Like how many more X type of brands can we have? And there were a lot of clusters happening in certain categories, um, including sort of bra and intimate apparel, including swimwear. There's some experience there. So, but, but there was this idea that it's okay. It's boom times. Things are good. And eventually everybody knew the cream would rise to the top. A lot of these companies would, you know, eventually fail and the good ones would stick around. And it was the good investor who made the good bets. But boom time investing and crisis investing is different. And is there a sense of sort of people being more careful about the numbers, people not sort of being as loosey-goosey with profitability and when you'll reach it? Um, Has that changed? Is there a mood shift that you're sensing? And how long does that last? Yeah, I think so. I mean, uh, this had, you know, this was even pre-corona, right? But I think, um, I think, yes. I mean, today there is just inherently more risk, right? Because we don't know how consumers are going to behave. We don't know how long this coronavirus is going to be around for. We don't know how soon the economy will bounce back. If in addition to all that, you're taking fundraising risk, meaning I'm investing in a company that is going to have to raise another, I'm making it up, $50 million to get to break even. Well, then in addition to all the business risk, I'm also taking risk that the private markets are going to be there to fund the business like that. Sure. It so happens that we never were investors in those kinds of companies. So we always invested in businesses that, you know, could get to break even with the capital that we were providing. Mm-hmm. Uh, not to say the company might not choose to raise more money later if, you know, the unit economics are good and they wanted to accelerate that growth, of course. Uh, but it's nice. But your parameters were always, the money will Correct. give you, will help you reach this place. And that's, Correct. that's important. And if it makes sense to raise more, then obviously, you know, we're supportive of that. But it can't be if we do not raise, we have to shut down. Um, and so I think that has definitely changed. And that was already the case pre-corona. And yes, has that accelerated or that thinking accelerated? I think so. We're going to take a quick break for an ad and we'll be right back. What about the other kind of foundational bits? Um, you know, especially I'm very curious about kind of marketing spend. I, I had mm-hmm. this like thesis 
um, for a long time that sort of a lot of especially direct-to-consumer brands in many categories were essentially just marketing companies. I mean, the products might have all been the same in some places in certain categories, but the ones that really stood out were the ones that did a really good job of marketing. And marketing gets a bad rep sometimes, but I don't even mean that in the bad way. People who do a good job of marketing and can tell their brand story and can explain that did better with consumers and maybe even did better with investors. And you saw that with companies that just were sort of the famous DTCs, right, last year. Um, with kind of the marketing landscape changing, customer acquisition costs are going down again, but also more consumers are going online. Um, does that change at all the sort of the foundational basics you're looking at for anybody that comes and tries to pitch you or sends you a deck? Yeah, I mean, ultimately, right, we're, we're classic investors in the sense that, you know, we'll look at, you know, you know, the forces in business, right? Is there a substitute? Is there a barrier to entry? Is there any differentiation, right? Who are you sourcing volume from? So we do look at all those um, those aspects of the business that, again, that hasn't necessarily changed. And, you know, I'll give you an example. We invested in a pet food company uh, called Num Num. It's fresh pet food, which happens to be one of the fastest growing you know, categories within pets. Mm -hmm. uh, particularly now, as I'm sure you're seeing adoption rate for pets are way up. Pets anyway. are good and, business. And, you know, the grocery, uh, we were an investor in, Pew in uh, Chewy in my previous firm. And, you know, we saw the grocery aisle move online very, you know, grocery store move online very quickly. But within that, really the pet food aisle leading the charge, right? So mm -hmm. already eight out of the $30 billion pet food market is sold online. Um, so there are a number of companies doing that. But what's great about Num Num and what, you know, they use our dollars for as well is like they built their own vertically integrated supply chain. They have real IP around their packaging equipment. They're the only company that does sort of individual portion sizes, so truly personalized. They hired, you know, PhDs to do microbiome analysis. We're now the largest repository of microbiome data for dogs in the world. So, yeah, we love to see, love to see our dollars not just go to sort of, you know, straight to Facebook and found marketing spend, but actually build... <laughs> capabilities that we think ultimately will create differentiation sure. and success. Do you have people that have come to you and said, look, I need money because Facebook's just really expensive and this is why I'm raising money? I have heard people tell me this, but I've heard VCs say, yeah, not like, directly, I know what this no. is going to be used for. <laughs> not that directly, no. <laughs> um, what about kind of distribution? Um, you know, again, sort of one thing that I was talking to a lot of people about, more and more people asking about things like, what is your Amazon strategy? Where mm. they weren't asking that, you know, even six or seven months ago. Um, sort of this idea that just direct-to-consumer, you know, may not be the future for a lot of places. And, you know, founders and companies that were willing to figure out sort of distribution, especially on Amazon, if it made sense, would be more attractive. Um, anything there around the sort of parameters that you're looking for that has changed or questions that you asked that has shifted? Yeah, again, it's not it's not really a change for us, but we, you know, because we were essentially investing in consumables, um, we were always looking for omnichannel brands, yeah. right? So again, Hydrant sells in Whole Foods. Uh, they sell on Amazon. They also sell on their site. And they've built the capability in-house to do all three really well. So there's a group of people that all they do is sort of maximize marketing campaigns on Instagram and Facebook because, you know, that is part of doing business and growing a brand today. Uh, they have you know people that are great at Amazon, and then they have you know you know uh, phenomenal t team as well that deals with more traditional grocery buyers and managing distributors, etc. So we look for brands that have that capability in house to manage multiple channels. Hmm. And I would say what we look for is really you know brands that understand the function, the value of each of those channels. They're going to have a different investment spend associated with uh, with each channel. They're going to have different profitability right associated with each channel. One channel might serve for discovery, another channel might serve for replenishment. Uh, and so do you have different SKUs for different channels? Do you have different messages for different channels? 
so that's what, you know, when you talk about Amazon strategy, it's really also how does that Amazon strategy fit in with what you're trying to do at, you know, in the grocery store or what you're trying to do on your own website? Or do you offer a personalized product on your own website, for example? Do you offer, you know, larger sizes for replenishment on Amazon? Do you offer trial packs for grocery or whatever it might be? That's really interesting. It's it's almost, um, I mean, in some ways, like, especially for kind of those categories that you guys tend to invest in, it, it's the Omnichannel becomes even more important. Whereas in, for some others, it's almost like being, because there was the sense like being direct to consumer only was sort of a a good thing for a lot of people. Right. Like, this is great. This is, you're going to build an entire, you know, and I think there was this point where people realize you, for most, again, I'm using a lot of generalizations here and I, there's always exceptions, but generally they got to be this feeling like you can't build a hundred million. There was like a ceiling and I don't know where the ceiling was. For some people it was a hundred million, 150 million. You can't mm -hmm. build a $150 million company just direct to consumer. At some point you're going to have to figure out maybe if you're a fashion brand, you have to figure out something with a department store. If you're a makeup beauty, maybe you need to figure out something with like Sephora or Alta, but you're not going to do this yourself. And I don't know if the ceiling's like lowering or raising now, but that is one thing that I, I thought a lot about. Um, at least again, this was six, seven months ago. Yeah. I think that's just more pronounced in grocery, right? I mean, um, and the reason I say that is because, you know, take, uh, you know, we invested in a company called uh, Just Spices. They make essentially dried spice mixes and meal helpers. Um, they, you know, that category is sold 95% through stores, right? You cannot only be direct to consumer. You're just not meeting the consumer where that consumer shops, right? But starting out D2C is great because it allows you to test new products. It allows you to tweak them. It allows you to capture data on repeat rates that you can then use to sell into a grocer. So in the case of Just Spices, you know, they're 50% sold online, 50% sold through stores. They launch new products online, see what percent, you know, people click on that product, what percent actually buy it, what percent buy it again. They'll send you a text to say, hey, we noticed you didn't repurchase this new SKU. Why not? Was it too salty? Was it too sweet? What was it? Mm -hmm. They can then, you know, change the formula, put it back up online, look at the metrics again. And then they can go to a supermarket and say, hey, we have a new SKU. And the supermarket typically will say, that's very good, but we have plenty of your SKUs already. And by the way, the reset's nine months from now. And then right. in this case, you know, Just Spices can say, well, that's great, but look at the reorder rates and look, we sold 10,000 of this product online in the last month. You have your that's like far, your first party data. <laughs> yeah, it's like far better productivity than the 10th SKU you have from our competitor brand. And by the way, we're shipping to zip codes where you have stores. Uh, do yourself a favor, you should really slot this in. And so... Yeah. It's just a different kind of discussion. Yeah. Um, so I would say I would agree with you. And I think it's, again, more pronounced in grocery than it is in some of the other categories that you mentioned. Uh, let's talk a little bit about acceleration. You sort of mentioned, you know, the, the numbers that you expected, like 2025 are suddenly happening like overnight, you know, for in terms of a lot of adoption of certain rates. I've heard some e-commerce stats that were really interesting. And one thing I'm finding interesting is sort of the new demographics. Um, so a lot of founders I talk to are like, oh, most of my... Um, most of my sort of online shoppers were very firmly in the making this up, but 25 to 34. And right. most of my physical store were obviously maybe, you know, 40 to 50. And now I have to move all these 40 to 50 year olds online because my stores are closed and right. I'm hoping they'll stay there. Which one of sort of these trends kind of do you see changing, sticking? I mean, look, retail's not dead. Like people are going to go back into a store yes. at some point. But how will those changes kind of shape up? And again, what are you sort of thinking of when you look at that recovery period you talked about, even past that second wave, maybe. Um, what sticks? 
Yeah. So Sergio, I'm, you know, you're speaking to someone who's had the experience of talking, uh, you know, their parents through sort of how to download the grocery, you know, app. Uh, as I'm sure many of us have, right? IT department for our, our I parents. love it. It's also like the um, first time I think a lot of people realize that like we had to be the parents. Like, don't go outside. Like, exactly. what happened to the boomers? The boomers just wanted to go outside the first early days. They were like, exactly. I really must. I'm still telling my father to wash his hands <laughs> and things like that. Absolutely. Um, no, so I think, you know, the, the data is only now coming out. I think what we are seeing is that, you know, some of our um, uh, work shows that, you know, roughly, um, you know, one third of Americans now over the last six weeks has ordered, you know, groceries online. So that's a huge number. Uh, is that all going to stick? No, right? I mean, I myself am very much looking forward to going back into, you know, my favorite grocery stores and, and perusing the aisles and discovering new products. Uh, but at the same time, you know, my parents and you know, many people like them have discovered the convenience of being able to buy groceries online. And even if they continue to do so, sometimes that's still a meaningful percentage of online groceries uh, uh, sold. And so I don't think it'll all stay at current levels. Um, but at the same time, we've definitely reached that tipping point. And again, if you know, you've discovered the convenience of being able to get you know, your favorite store delivered through Instacart or whatever it might be, my guess is you're going to continue to use it, albeit not as frequently, you know, as during a pandemic when no one wants to leave their house, obviously. Yeah, that one will definitely, definitely stick around. Um, when you look at kind of um, other sort of consumer behaviors, anything else that's sort of something you're thinking about or something you're saying, okay, that's one yeah. where I'm keeping an eye on? Absolutely. I think you know, maybe I can give you two examples or one of the grocery store and one maybe of the beauty store. Um, so in the grocery store, we're definitely thinking about you know, what happens in a world where you're not allowed to sample, right? So currently, most grocery stores are not allowing people to come in and merchandise or sample uh, their their products. I was uh, going to say, this, like the idea of going to a Costco and like picking up one of those exactly rough. some of the finger food that someone sliced Ooh, right there without the running water. Just the term finger food is exactly exactly. But the reality is that's that's how a lot of new brands got trial, right? And so as we think about a world where Either that's not allowed, like now, or even when it is allowed, consumers, you know, much like your reaction, are just not going to feel comfortable, you know, taking you know toast with you know cheese off a plate at Costco uh, with their fingers. Um, you know, we're going to have to really think through how do you accomplish that ultimately awareness building and trial, right? Is there a way you can do that online? Is there a way that you can do that differently? So yeah. that's something that we're thinking about a lot. Our second example of that is you know the beauty store, right? Would you feel comfortable? Going into a beauty store, sitting down on a on a stool, it could be a department store, it can be, you know, something like an altar or a Sephora, and having someone apply makeup to your face using a brush that was just used on someone else's face. I'm seeing you hesitate. It's probably not, right? <laughs> no, similarly, I had to think about it and just like recoiled internally. <laughs> right, right. And similarly, you know, that palette is open, right? So the palette's been used before, right? Maybe before you would go up to a counter and there'd be an open jar of face cream. And you'd stick your finger in that face cream, right? Slap and apply it, it to your, slap it on your hand to see, or an open lipstick, right? And apply the lipstick even just to that, to your hand to see how that color fits with your skin tone or whatever it might be. So all that behavior, I think, is going to change for, I mean, until there's a vaccine. And candidly, we've all become so, we've all become OCD and germ freaks overnight, right? We've all become so aware. Yeah. So again, thinking, so the company that we just actually closed on last week um, is in the personal care space. 
and they uh, very successfully you know sample online and they very su- successfully sell even um, you know categories like fragrance online so imagine trying to sell a fragrance to someone that's never smelled that before I always used to, I used to look at I always thought like sort of the idea of selling perfume online and this was years ago I think I was like this just can you believe it but exactly but if you can do that then you can sell a lot of the easier personal ca- categories online as well right so as you think about the capabilities that sort of newly emerging brands can develop that ultimately will be of value to a strategic like an Estee Lauder or L'Oreal. Well, I think that's a pretty interesting capability. Um, so that's one of the reasons why we invested in that company. That's really interesting. And you, you just mentioned kind of Estee Lauder, which made me think of something else, which is, you know, sort of exit strategies um, for a lot of companies too. I mean, I wonder if sort of like how those will change. Because you mentioned earlier that a lot of legacy companies, you know, sort of just haven't kept up. And one way that a lot of bigger companies have sort of gotten into the action is by either investing in or just snapping up um, a lot of these like so-called direct-to-consumer brands or a lot of sort of startups and so on. Um, Kind of in terms of sort of those ideas, and I know you sort of invest in so many early stage firms, I am asking you to kind of project a little bit, but have our founders thinking differently about sort of their exits or founders thinking differently about like where this ends up? And is that even a question you sort of get to? And also, would you ever, if somebody came to you and said, I'm going to launch a company right now, is that something you'd say, yeah, go for it, do it? Or is there just, hell no, don't launch. This is not the time. <laughs> so there's a lot there. So um, uh, in terms of launching, you know, I'm actually, even at just a personal level, I'm very excited to see what innovation is going to come out of this crisis because there, there always is, right? And uh, new business models will have to emerge. Uh, and I'm not talking about companies launching just to sell face masks, right? I'm talking about companies just like after 08, 09, there was this whole wave of innovation. And I'm personally very excited uh, by what is, what's going to come there. Um, you know, is today a right time to launch? I don't know. I think it's certainly difficult to see uh, sort of trends in the noise right now in terms of what consumers want. So from that perspective, it's a little bit more challenging. I think retailers aren't as open to trying out new SKUs, right? particularly in grocery you know, they're more concerned about keeping toilet paper in stock than sort of taking on a new brand. And, mm-hmm. you know, the beauty stores are more concerned just about reopening than they are about sort of adding new brands. So I think from that perspective, it's a little bit more challenging. But at the same time, you know, people are on their phones a lot more than they ever have been. They're more open to buying things online than they ever have been. So there's certainly opportunity. Uh, your question around exit, you know, I think what, what, what I think the consensus view is, is and you, whether you talk to strategics or hear what they're saying or bankers or even some of the startups that are a little bit later stage, is that I think exits have been pushed out a little bit, right? So where you see, you know, today, obviously, it's very hard for strategics to even do site visits and conduct due diligence and whatnot and do consumer surveys uh, without any noise in that data. So I think for the most part, there has been a little bit of a delay, I think. Uh, And then in terms of what they're looking to buy, I think, you know, just being D2C isn't enough, right? I think strategics have caught up, they've figured out how to do yeah, if it's just a channel, if it's just a way to sell a product, that's probably not enough. Um, but all the capabilities that uh, they don't have are still plentiful, right? There's whether it's personalization, whether it's you know brand discovery, whatever it might be. I do still think that um, startups are doing really interesting things that ultimately strategics will value. Um, you mentioned 08, and I find that really interesting. You know, one thing that we've talked a lot about is. Uh, 
just experience kind of the, you know, uh, we sort of put this in a column um, on our sister site, Digiday, the other day, kind of, there's this pivot to experience. And a lot of execs, you know, mostly immediately that I've talked to are saying, mm. look, we, we don't have, and because of the way the world works, we just don't have managers and leaders who've lived through crises before. I mean, in a lot of cases, sort of, this is the first right. kind of crisis to come up and it's caused some really interesting, I think, tensions, some generational, but some just sort of experiential about these people don't know what it's like to be in non-boom times. And it creates some like issues with resilience. It creates issues with sort of leading teams. And I'm curious about what that means for founders. I mean, so many startup founders through no fault of their own tend to have not been even working in 2008. Yeah. What lessons have sort of you got for from kind of the last, you know, recession, um, I, not, I don't know where sort of this shakes out that are either applicable that you've been thinking about, but saying, actually, this, this is maybe like that. And these are some of the qualities I know I need to think about. Is there anything, yeah. is there anything out there that founders should be thinking about too? Yeah, for sure. And it's interesting because I started investing, you know, in early 09. Um, no, great timing. And so, so great timing. Exactly. Um, I mean, by the way, it is great timing, right? I exactly. Think new funds that are, that are being deployed over the next sort of 24, 36 months right. you know, are likely to be very good vintages, uh, much like the 09 and 10 funds were excellent vintages. Yeah. Um, but it's interesting because it's actually made me more risk averse. So I, arguably I should have been more risk on over the last decade than I right. have been. Yeah, especially uh, because, because it was 09 and now. Exactly, because I had seen sort of the worst happen, right? You sort of seen, you know, what can go wrong actually go wrong. Um, so that's sort of, but that's... Uh, more something that I personally sort of ask myself. And, and I, <laughs> you know, a Andrew, Andrew, my partner, and I balance each other very well in that regard. Um, but um, no, and in terms of lessons, I mean, I think clearly, um, you know, the, the, the sort of the, the, the four lenses, if you will, through which we look at it are, you know, how is demand impacted? And, you know, specifically really understanding that, you know, consumers are going to trade down to private label during times like this. And even though, you know, in the bubble in which we live in sort of New York or in, you know, Northern California or in LA, it might be okay to spend, you know, 4X uh, the, uh, the price on a product that you can find, you know, substitute for in the supermarket. But uh, in bad times, that's just not okay. And consumers are already going to think long and hard about paying that kind of a premium for a product. So we do think about what is a substitute and how much more expensive are you and what value ultimately are you delivering to consumers? Yeah. Um, we think a lot about, you know, supply chain, obviously, currently, and how is that being impacted and disrupted? And do suppliers go bankrupt? Or in this case, can suppliers not supply? And do you have backup? And is your team cross-trained? Um, you know, thirdly, we obviously think about leadership, and you just touched on it. But to what extent, you know, I think that this is a time when we want leaders also to be honest with our teams and not say, you know, go, go, and everything is going to be amazing, but just to be humble and honest and say, listen, we don't know what the next 18 months look like, but we're doing our best, and this is what we're doing. Yeah. Uh, so we look a lot to leadership. Uh, and then finally, obviously, we do also look to liquidity, right? And so that's certainly a big lesson from 08 or 09 is that, you know, the private capital markets are just not always going to be there to fund your right. business, uh, even though you as a business might be doing well, or or even if they are, the terms just might not be as attractive. And so really thinking about having that additional runway uh, is something that really matters. On that note, is is something kind of, you know, with current companies that you've already invested in and, you know, working with, they 
do you look at kind of are they are they pulling the right levers? Are they making the hard decisions? And some of these decisions are really hard. You, people yeah. with having to furlough employees and lay off employees and get rid of stores and you know push back on rent. These are issues that every business you know almost is sort of grappling with. And people willing to make those those hard decisions seem to me as sort of solid people investments, if nothing else. Yeah, no, absolutely. And we've yeah we've been very impressed by sort of the founders of the companies that we've invested in and that. Some of them did have to make those decisions and they did so quickly and they communicated very clearly with their teams that this was one round and this was it and that they're now sort of right size for the next sort of 18 to 24 months and sort of thereby also removed a lot of the uncertainty, which we really respected. Um, yeah. So I, I, absolutely. I think that's 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 paramount. Again, we were somewhat in a fortunate position in that you know, we invested in consumer staples that are mostly sold in an omnichannel way. And so we've been far less impacted than, you know, had we invested in restaurants or travel or energy, right? Um, great. I'll call your tone realistic, but hopeful. I think that Correct. works. Perfect. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Franklin, thank you so much for being on the Modern Retail <laughs> Podcast. Thank you for your time. And thank you, of course, for listening to this episode of the Modern Retail Podcast, a show by Digiday, our producers, PRBNMA. Please head to your iTunes store. If you like the show, search for a show, leave us a review and a rating. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>